Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. So this is me, and uh, we are in the process of putting together uh, for you a wonderful show about paper. However, we're having a little bit of a technical problem getting our guests. So let me just say a couple of things about paper, including the idea that obviously, you know, people think about paper as a dying form. On the other hand, I think we have kind of an approach avoidance relationship to paper. When I travel, one of the things that I notice, particularly in Europe, is that, I mean, any town you go to has at least one lovely paper shop. And it's not, it's no longer just a stationary shop. It's kind of a shop that has all kinds of things that are made out of paper. Uh, yeah, I mean, like little notebooks and uh, I don't know what else. I mean, I usually go in, too, because it's kind of like, well, you realize that, that, yes, in a way, your entire life has been, if you're of a certain age anyway, your, your entire life has been memorialized on paper, and there's still something very attractive about that. I mean, at the Beinecke Library uh, in New Haven, not too far from one of our studios, is this unbelievable collection of paper. Uh, I mean, not just of paper, obviously, but things written on paper. For example, they have the prayer book of Sir Thomas More, the prayer book that he was praying in, along with, I guess, and, but also writing marginalia in when he was in the Tower of London about to be executed. Right? Just think about that. I mean, there's sort of no way. There's no way that there can be a digital equivalent of that. You know, the, the notion that, that you can see the handwriting of Sir Thomas More in, in the margins of a prayer book uh, as, he, as he awaits his execution is, I mean, that's like, uh, it's hard to wrap your mind around. Um, and, and that is, I think, one of the things that, that is already lost. So much of, I, I even remember, I mean, this isn't even a particularly numinous example, but I remember uh, as a history student in college, uh, at one point, they they had recently declassified a lot of the documents uh, that uh, involved the decision to drop the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I was in a history class where they were really trying to get us familiar with working with original materials. So everybody in the class got basically plopped into their hands this enormous amount uh, of photocopied materials. And yes, I realized trees were cut down and stuff like that. And we can get to that at some point. But, um, but to look at these documents that, you know, people inside the Roosevelt administration, people, you know, I mean, letters or telegrams or whatever sent by MacArthur to General George Marshall. I mean, you know, to see that kind of stuff, to have it in your hands, not, not even the original physical representation, but even but just to see it itself, see a signature, see maybe an inky thumbprint or something. There's some way in which paper speaks to us uh, in a manner that is going to be lost. I mean, nobody wants to see the emails of John Brown, the abolitionist, A, because there aren't any, but who, like, who wants to see that? <laughs> um, and, and of course, increasingly, the other problem is that the, the, the less we use paper, the less articulately we write because paper kind of demands something of you, right? Uh, there's a way in which paper asks you a little bit more. Uh, you can't do 
you're you're less likely to do LMFAO and LOLs and things like that if you're writing on paper. All right, so I think we're ready to go here. I've been, as you can probably tell, vamping a little bit. Um, and so as we get ready with our first guest, uh, I'm going to play a little clip to you from a very familiar TV show. Uh, it's The Office. And if you recall, on The Office, obviously – um, it was a sort of, you know, what, maladjusted and dystopian office environment. <laughs> so they had to be working for a company that essentially had no future, uh, had no cutting edge purpose. So, of course, it was a paper company. My job is to speak to clients um, on the phone about uh, quantities and uh, type of copier paper. You know, uh, whether we can supply it to them, whether they can uh, pay for it. And um, I'm, I'm boring myself just talking about this. All right. So joining us now is somebody who is not bored by paper, Nicholas Basbanes, uh, independent scholar, a cultural historian and author of nine books, including the, his latest on paper, everything, the everything of its 2000 year history. Uh, and it's a two-dimensional uh, history. So, um, Nicholas, first of all, welcome to the conversation we're having. Well, thank you. Great pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me on. So I would imagine that you would uh, object strenuously uh, to the contention that was made in that comedy clip that there's something fundamentally boring about paper. Well, you know, I object to a, to, uh, to a degree, but not so strenuously, because one of the features of paper is that it's ubiquitous, and, and we do not notice it, you know, because it's so ever-present in our lives that you sort of take it for granted. You almost think it's been here forever. But when you realize that it's only 2,000 years old, you say only, my goodness, but it it was invented 2,000 years ago, and then it it had this migration that took 1,500 years to really just travel throughout the world, country after country, and everywhere it went, it just uh, had these seismic changes. So... And then, and then, of course, people just uh, overlook it. So, yeah, I guess, I guess that poor guy <laughs> was bored by the job because people more or less uh, look right through it. So, I, but, 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 I, but on the other hand, it's ubiquitous and it's essential. So I, I suppose, yes, I would object. Well, and I think it's fair to say also that we are who we are because of paper, that uh, that history proceeded in the way that it did eventually because people were able to write things down onto paper and maybe convey that piece of paper someplace else. Ultimately, um, uh, the spread of knowledge, uh, the, the spread of good ideas and bad ideas and friendly overtures and unfriendly overtures, it's all essentially a story of paper, right? Well, when you think about it, you said history. Exi- well, what is history? Uh, history is the recording of events. And when we say prehistory, it doesn't mean things didn't happen then. It's just that we don't know about it because nobody wrote it down. And, uh, I mean, this is not the only medium of transmission. This is what sort of got me into this in the first instance, is that there have been so many, uh, just an extraordinary variety of materials that have been used over the centuries to record people's ideas, people's thoughts, uh, uh, people's entertainment, every manner of thing, their business, baked clay tablets. But when paper came along, it was revolutionary. And, and yes, that has been more or less the handmaiden to history, to thought, to creativity, to business, to, uh, to government. Bureaucracy, the whole essence of bureaucracy, it needs paperwork. I mean, uh, red tape is another word for tying uh, paper stacks of paper together. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but it, I would just say it's it's just synonymous. History is synonymous with paper as we know it. 
things are changing, but paper's still out there, you know, and it's not going away anytime soon. Although I was surprised to discover that even some medieval manuscripts are still um, written on animal skins, animal skins that were sometimes stretched in so tight, so thinly that you could see the vascular systems uh, of the animals. Yeah, that's vellum and parchment. So vellum comes from a cow and parchment comes from a goat, supposedly. And you, you remember the two, vellum and veal, share the, the same root. But think about it. You know, when, when Johannes Gutenberg invented or uh, developed printing by movable type in Germany in 1450, that was 50 or 60 years after paper arrived in Germany. Now, he did about how many of those Bibles, the first printed book, uh, maybe 250 is the number, 40 or so were probably on vellum, on animal skin. For every Bible that, that he did on animal skin, and it was a three-volume, they, they, they estimated that you needed about 265 lambs or goats or calves or whatever, you know, you know, look, look at what you're slaughtering to make a book. Uh, so paper, so it was very expensive and very arduous. Uh, another thing paper did is it just made for the for the availability of, of replication just just uh, in extraordinary numbers. I mean, the, the, the people that you could now reach, and then the printing press followed. I don't think the printing press. I'm sure the printing press would never have been invented if paper hadn't already preceded it. So you tra- you traveled all over the world to uh, to research uh, and write this book, um, and and yes, as you say, we have a rather nonchalant attitude towards paper uh, in this country. Um, in Japan, we could do an entire show about paper in Japan, oh, okay. um, yeah. but but let's do the sort of sixty second version of it. It's just a different thing there, right? Well, it's almost it's almost a religion. It's uh, it's it's uh, one of the reasons of the many reasons I went to Japan is I wanted to go to this village. Uh, Echizen City, where there are still perhaps 40 or 50 studios where they make paper in the traditional way by hand. But also there is a, is a shrine, a Shinto shrine. It's to the goddess of papermaking, Kawakama Gozen. I mean, really, where else can you go to see an actual goddess, who, a deity, who's there to help the papermakers, you know, make paper? Supposedly, according to the myth, she taught the villagers how to make paper. But uh, and she uh, uh, supposedly also was around the time that paper came into Japan from Korea. The Japanese didn't invent it; the Chinese did, and it came to Japan by way of Korea. But what the Japanese did, as they do with so many things, is they take something that somebody else did and they perfect it and they make it their own. And it's just and Japanese paper still today is the standard, magnificent paper. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But again, that doesn't fit into the sixty-second. No, there's like, uh, another thing about this too is that um, one of those mysterious things about their history is from I think about 16 to 1630 they started using movable type. They started using basically Gutenberg's technology, and then they decided they didn't like it. They shut it down and they went back to wood blocks. And it's not entirely clear I think to this day why that is. But um, and obviously they didn't stay with wood blocks. Well, yeah, and uh, you, you know we say printing. We, here in here in the West, meaning Europe and North America, people say, "Oh, Gutenberg invented printing in the 15th century." Well, really, the Chinese did that four or five hundred years prior to that by woodblocks, right. and then that was really the method of, of printing uh, in Asia was through woodblocks, and that is the traditional the traditional uh, uh, way of printing uh, in, in that part of the world. And I, I guess going back to that is a kind of a return to traditional forms. But the paper that they made also. You know, the process of making paper, you can use any vegetative source. So the kind of paper that's made over there is really is really suited to woodblock printing. It's quite beautiful. 
Yes. So there are, there are multiple reasons beyond just because they like want to go back to old forms. I think if you're really going to print a beautiful, because you talk about paper can also be a work of art. Uh, while I was there, I in Japan, I, I interviewed a, a living national treasure paper maker who was the son of a living national, the first living national treasure paper maker. He was the ninth generation, and his paper. I mean, you you buy his paper just for the beauty of his paper. And uh, artists all over the world use it. I got a couple of sheets. It's magnificent. I mean, you say you look at a piece of paper and you say, "Can it be beautiful?" But when you feel it, and you the texture, and you see uh, uh, all the fibers, these long, uh, ma- magnificent kozo fibers that they have from the inner bark of the mulberry uh, tree, it's it's just a, a magnificent, exquisite thing. So you know, uh, in a way, paper was the internet before there was the internet. It was a way of moving information around. Usually, governments like to be able to control how information gets moved around and what information gets moved around. So, just in the same way that, say, China might restrict uh, the way the internet works, uh, were there attempts to restrict paper? Well, think about you know, I have a chapter in my book. uh, when you think about how we be- we became a, a nation in this country, you know, it starts, so many historians say, with the Stamp Act of, what, 1765. You look at that Stamp Act and what that was, it was the British government uh, levying taxes on every different form, uh, any every use that you could apply to paper, including you had to buy stamped paper. So they controlled the supply of paper to newspapers, that was the thing they never should have done. Once you, once you got the newspapers mad at you, the Stamp Act was doomed. But, you know, if you wanted to have a marriage license, you wanted to practice law, you wanted to sell property, if you died, you wanted to record a death certificate, you had to buy, the way we actually have to do today, you had to buy stamps. Well, of course, they rebelled against that, against that. they, they, they uh, never uh, enforced it. But it was it led ten years later to the you know it was the first step the opening salvo if you will on the on the road to the American Revolution and it starts with taxation against paper and again that would have been just one out of many many uh, attempts to restrict and to curtail and to control uh, the supply of paper. There's a way in which we even use the phrase uh, on paper idiomatically to mean a certain thing. And it's it's often difficult to pin down what that thing means. But, yeah, and I think I might have said a few weeks ago, you know, on paper the Houston Astros are a better team than the Boston Red Sox. Well, that's, that's one of many. I mean, I, I was looking at my book on the way in today, you know, and I'm thinking, well, how many different cliches do we have that we use paper? You know, or, or you know, a, a deck, a house of cards. Well, a card is paper. It's on paper. On paper, you know, the Boston Red Sox might be the best team in the world, but uh, thankfully, they're, they're, uh, I'm a Massachusetts person, so I'm very happy with, they, with the way that's going. But, but what, do, what, what do we mean when we say that? We say on well, paper. We say, well, well, because we're figuring it out. We calculate. Right. It was another, that was another thing. That was another uh, aspect of what paper did. People started to doodle. They started to take notes. They started to figure things out with paper. You know, uh, uh, Leonardo da Vinci is one of the great, great thinkers. And really, you think about it, he's an artist, he was an architect, he was... But, but really, what we know about Leonardo is from his, what, 3,500 or 4,000 pages of notebooks. And he's not just writing, he's brainstorming, he's figuring things out. Could he have done that without paper? Well, he was a genius, but you think he could have done it on animal skins? Could he have done it right, like as Archimedes did? He was drawing on the ground with a stick. That's why the Roman soldier killed him, because he said, you're blocking the sun. You know, I'm doing my figures. Mm. He didn't have paper. But, uh, yeah, it's on, on paper. I mean, it does become idiomatic, because we do tinker with things. We figure things out on paper. Uh, 
but there are so many cliches that use that uh, that use that phrase or, or, or a corollary of it. Right. So Nicholas Basbane's, uh, you know, there are cliches and then there are realities as well. For example, um, we just did a uh, a show just a few days ago on election security, uh, and ultimately one of the questions about voting machines there there's some voting machines where there's a paper trail and other machines in which there's not. And here in 2018, hyper sophisticated 2018, there is still the notion, and it's not just a notion, it's an idea with some validity, that if the machine doesn't produce a corresponding paper record that can be cross-checked against whatever the digital uh, performance of the machine is, uh, that that's a problem. So, Well, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think this whole trend uh, to have uh, uh, totally electronic voting is is so is so uh, susceptible to fraud. You have to have a paper trail. I mean, you get you get a slip of paper when you buy a tank of gas. Why can't you get a slip of paper when you when you cast your vote? You know, the most precious fundamental right that we have as Americans is our vote, and that yet you you can find a way to manipulate it. I mean, and in Florida and many states where they actually had gone all electronic, they found that they had to go back and provide a paper copy because it's really the only safest way. And look, remember that election of two thousand? Was it? Uh, Paper chads, yeah. That, that whole election hinged on counting chads and dangling whatever they were, paper, the paper ballot. It was all about the, the, the results of that election was held up for how many weeks while we were counting paper ballots. Remember that? Yes, I absolutely do. And so, I mean, you know, another cliche is where are your papers? But that's not also just a cliche. To this day, I mean, we may be moving to the era of retinal scans and stuff like that. But for now, one of the ways you establish who you are, where you came from, the final word on it, on it is what? Your birth certificate, your well, passport, well, try, your try social travel, security. Try to travel anywhere without your passport. See how far you get beyond security. Right. Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> And, and, and what they do with passports now is they, that they are building in various other uh, uh, safety uh, features, you know, that, 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 are, uh, that do have these, uh, these chips or whatever that, that more or less validate who you are. But it still comes down to paper that's made by the Crane Paper Company, which makes all the paper for American currency. Think about that. You know, paper is a, is a, is a surrogate for value. It's just a piece of paper, but, it, but yet one of these little things can be worth $100. Uh, or, or, or commensurate with $100, but that's only because we have faith that it has that value. It's still just a piece of paper. You know, think about it. Paper gets value strictly by what's upon it. You know, somebody might pay uh, $3 million or $4 million for a Honus Wagner baseball card, or $3 million for a Superman comic book because it was the first one, and a Superman comic book might, might have been printed on the worst possible imaginable uh, acidic paper. But why would somebody pay that much? It's because of what the content is, the intellectual construct, if you will. And I can't think of any other valuable item that is valuable strictly uh, for what is, has been either written upon it or printed upon it. You know, I think I know how this uh, comes out, but um, obviously we're in the middle of a transition period where there will be, there has been the elimination of paper in a lot of sectors, and paper is probably challenged. And it's not all bad, by yeah. the way, either. You know, uh, do we use do we use roadmaps? You know, we, we have our, our GPS systems. Do we use telephone books anymore? No. So, I mean, there are many, many things that are better served by other means than paper. You know, I think paper is now being allowed and enabled to achieve its full potential as a medium for creative expression. Uh, really, I think you're, I, I think you're still going to find your best literature really appearing between hardcovers. I just don't see the electronic book uh, replacing the, the fundamental codex book uh, 
uh, as as a as a medium of creative expression. Creative right. is the key the key word there. And and also, I mean, there's a way in which paper is. I just would like to just interject for the record. I still love a roadmap, and sometimes I want a roadmap oh, I, to I give. Save them. I yeah. love them well, myself. I, 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 there's I, a way you can get sort of a perspective about things that by looking at a roadmap that you really just can't get by looking on your phone or listening to a GPS. So there, there's still a place even for that. And there's also a way in which paper is more secure than than the alternative. I mean, if the ultimate air-gapped thing is paper, uh, we have even Omarosa's claim that she saw Donald Trump crumble up, crumble up and eat a piece of paper that had something on it that he didn't want anybody to well, know just about. Just think of that WikiLeaks dump. Or think, remember the, oh, these these astonishing. Uh, thefts of material and by, by the thousands, but still today, I mean, I, I interviewed people and uh, in, in the, the, the intelligence agencies, and they will tell you still the most secure way to preserve a, a secret, if you will, is on paper and to restrict the access to it. And it's a physical document. Uh, what, what could be more secure than that than to have an absolute limited number of copies that somebody might not be able to hack or to get into and then all of a sudden throw up in the Internet for the world to see, which we've seen happening in recent years. We're heading towards a break right now. We're going to have more Nicholas Basbeans. I do want to say that even though paper production does have a high carbon footprint and there's a lot of bad chemicals used in it and a lot of water and there's some pretty stinky uh, towns uh, in, in places where, uh, where paper making uh, was the uh, industry, there's also a way in which paper is kind of reclaiming a little bit of its status. I mean, it's a heavily recycled product. And there's even things like the Peace Paper Project where they tour around and they visit places and they teach people how to make paper for to, to become more aware of the environment. They use invasive plants to make the papyrus, and they use pedal power to, to do the crushing and stuff like that. So uh, it's not necessarily the case that paper is a completely non-green thing. It has its place in, in the ecosystem. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back with more. By the way, if you're wondering, I mean, this is the Colin McEnroe show. Are they going to talk about toilet paper? Yes, it's our whole third and final section. But before that, we've got a second section coming up with more of Nicholas uh, and also a conservator of art on paper in private practice, advisor to museums, etc. Don't let other fellows cannot steal. And then the flirty, flirty guys with the flirty, flirty eyes will have to flirt with dollies that are real. When I come home at night, she will be waiting. Yes, well, welcome back to our conversation about paper. Uh, this part of our show, I should tell you, is also going to be simulcast in a format we invented called Radio for the Deaf. So there are two American Sign Language interpreters who are in real time uh, signing or, or interpreting everything that we say on this show. It's available on Facebook Live at the Colin McEnroe Show page. So go to the Colin McEnroe Show page of Facebook. You'll see the interpreters there. And that'll be there in perpetuity. So, uh, I mean, you don't have to do it live if you don't want to. Uh, Joining us is Nicholas Basbanes, an independent scholar, cultural historian, and author of nine books, including his latest On Paper, the everything of its uh, 2,000-year history. I keep wanting to say two-dimensional history because that's true, too. But also with us, Rachel Danzing, conservator of art on paper in private practice, advisor to museums, foundations, and private collectors, as well as an adjunct teacher at NYU's Institute of Fine Arts. Nicholas, before we we bring Rachel into the conversation, I did want to just uh, get you to mention one thing because this is fascinating and I had not known it. You spent quite a bit of time trying to get 
get into um, a part of the National Security Agency's operations yeah. at Fort uh-huh. Meade. Ex- yeah. Explain what goes on there. Well, it's uh, again, it goes back to, uh, is it paperless? Uh, do we foresee a paperless site, or do we still use paper? They use millions of pieces of paper. Uh, and, they were, and, of course, everyone is classified, secret, top secret, whatever. And they have this enormous pulping uh, uh, mill, a paper mill at the NSA. It took me seven months to get in there, to get permission and to get in and to get cleared. And to just go, and they said, oh, what do, you, what do you want to come here for? It's like a paper, paper. I said, well, that's the point. I want to see what they do is they take, uh, there are these chutes, man-sized chutes coming from all over the complex, burn bags coming in by the thousands, and not only from the NSA, but they are also the facility for something like 30 other intelligence agencies in the D.C. area. You see these white, they're like garbage trucks, there, but they're all white, non-painted, and they're lined up like 20, 30 trucks long, and they're just dumping their stuff. They're pulping it, they're turning it into low-grade pulp, and when I was there, they sold the pulp to Weyerhaeuser, uh, something like 20 tons a day of, of uh, processed pulp, and I guess egg, egg cartons and pizza boxes were the final products. So you might pick up a pizza pie someday, and it might have once been a top-secret message. I love that idea. Yes, your pizza box used to be a top-secret document. <laughs> All right, so uh, Rachel Danzing, thank you so much for joining this uh, conversation. Uh, maybe just to give people a sense of what your work is like, give us a quick story about the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Talk about that project. Okay. Hello. Hi. Um, Yes, that project was done about, um, actually it was almost 10 years ago. It was um, a work at the Brooklyn Museum. It's a Book of the Dead, which is basically a guidebook for um, the deceased to enter into the next world. And this one was, um, this one was unusual in that it, it's one of the, it's one of the very first Book of the Deads. Um, it was around 1470 BCE. And it was in eight pieces between glass, and it was written on both sides. And um, we got some funding, very generous funding, from the Shelby White and Leon Levy Foundation to work on it, to do conservation on it. So basically we took, the, um, we took it out of the glass sleeves, and we um, were able to stabilize it, stabilize the um, vignettes that were done with pigment and the inks, um, and the papyrus itself. So it was very interesting to work on something that's, I guess, almost three and a half thousand years old. So, and one of the things that happens anytime you're working with um, uh, and trying to preserve and restore and illuminate um, an old, old manuscript um, is that you have to do things to it, right? I mean, if you just let it sit there and you don't treat it in any way, it's, it's, it's not going to survive. So it, there's, right. there must be kind of a push and pull. You don't want to adulterate it any more than you have to, but you, you have to make some decisions. Well, absolutely, absolutely. You know, we often treat things that are in very, very poor condition. Um, and so, um, but what, you know, what we mostly um, focus on is we do an examination, we document, um, we um, do some research, we do some education, very much try to get the full picture. We may talk to uh, the curator who has an historical point of view, uh, conservation scientists, and do some, um, some scientific uh, research. And we tried to come up, based um, with our experience and our knowledge of materials and knowledge of papyrus, um, how the piece has changed over time and how perhaps maybe its storage has changed it um, and what perhaps treatment can do for it. So we do 
kind of try to take all that into consideration and decide whether to to move forward. And, um, you know, often with papyrus, especially as being an archaeological material, we don't necessarily, and of course, we don't want to make it look new. We want to, of course, be um, sensitive to what the original artist was doing or the original historian and, and, and and also sensitive to what the piece has been through. It's been through a burial and that kind of thing. So, you know, often we're trying to stabilize something, not necessarily make it look new. Um, so especially for this piece, there are, you know, um, pieces of papyrus all over the place. Um, not all over, because some days were in glass sandwiches. But, um, you know, but we wanted to kind of, uh, one, stabilize those and also put them kind of back together. And we worked with a papyrologist at the Brooklyn Museum, Paul O'Rourke, and, you um, you know, we wanted to work with him to help us put it back together, but also it kind of helped him to read the the um, the Book of the Dead Scroll as well, and 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 to publish and to publish it. So, um, Nicholas, uh, as you worked with old paper, you know, we talked about uh, how a Japanese piece of paper can be a work in, of art in itself. But all paper has a lot of sensory qualities, ranging from the visual quality to the to the sense of touch. But uh, there's also a smell, and, and the smell differs quite a lot. I think we all know that uh, old big book smell. In just a second, I'll have Rachel explain the old book smell a little bit technically. But, uh, Nicholas, maybe as you uh, studied all that, all the different forms of paper and ways in which paper uh, is used. You must have encountered a, a wide range of olfactory experiences. Yeah, well, the smell not, is not necessarily a good sign. Uh, maybe Rachel uh, could illuminate us a little bit on that, but when you can smell paper, generally that's not a good sign because I think it's deteriorating, you know. It's, that's kind of uh, uh, paper. It does not necessarily, I mean, really wonderful uh, handmade paper from uh, pure uh, vegetative cellulosic sources, it can be luxurious, but not necessarily for the smell. I, I mean, I, 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 when you can smell paper, you know, when you go into a library and you have that, that distinctive smell, as, as intoxicating as it may be, it's also a sign that these books are deteriorating and need somebody like Rachel to come in and, and help them and stabilize them. So, Rachel, tell us about that old book smell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true. What Nicholas said. Um, often, uh, when you go and you you have a smell, that musty smell is often uh, indicative of the presence of mold or uh, of mold growth somehow, and and um, that can happen when cellulosic materials are exposed to um, moisture in the air or high RH. So, um, and then sometimes. Even cellulosic materials will degrade. As they degrade, they can degrade into smaller units of glucose, which is sugar. And sometimes you'll even smell sugar when you go into, um, especially a, a text, a, this you know, like a textile storage area. Um, so, like Nicholas said, it's not necessarily a good smell. Um, and um, a lot of what we work on is, of course, not necessarily m- making something look better, but um, also preserving it as where it is, and that uh, a lot of our focus is on um, on providing the correct um, storage environment for these things, the correct temperature, the correct air quality, um, the correct relative humidity. That all plays a really large role in the preservation of these of books or works of art on paper. Um, I would imagine also that Rachel, Rachel, that insects are not our friends uh, in, in this. In this, I mean, do you ever get things that maybe somebody even hasn't dared to open for a long time, and then find that somebody's been munching away at it? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And often, you know, you see, you you know, definitely you see evidence of insect activity, especially on, 
yeah, and books, and sometimes it goes like straight through the pages, and you can see exactly where they decided to uh, to eat through. Um, yes, yeah, so a, very much a part of maintaining a collection is keeping it clean um, to keep away insect activity, and also um, to keep food and water. You know, that's why often you you can't eat or drink in a museum or in a conservation lab. Um, you know, definitely to keep pests away. That's definitely an external source of um, of um, you know, of, of damage. Yes. So, you know, the more that, you know, we change one way, the more we have nostalgic for the nostalgia for the other way. I always point out to people that Wild West shows became incredibly popular in America during the actual uh, death of the Wild West. Uh, the frontier was really kind of shrinking and ending. Uh, so we celebrated it. And we do that again and again. And, and so, Nicholas, I'm assuming that this is something that's happening now, too, that as digital culture begins to eat up some of what would have been paper culture, that there is uh, an increasing kind of counter celebration of and nostalgia for paper is that fair to say oh i think it's very fair to say and not, and not just paper i just think that there's a whole new awareness and respect for materiality material objects in general you know as, as you get more virtualization uh, all of a sudden people have this i mean look at vinyl and records for instance it's the same sort of thing people have this respect for the original artifact and you know uh, there are, there are still bibliophiles and book collectors and uh, and, and and why are they why are they why do people become so impassioned over owning a book or a manuscript because it's you know putting quotes around it it's, it's the real thing you're getting closer to that creative process or if you have it signed or something that's been signed or handled by the author that kind of brings you that much closer to that that uh, and so there is still that respect and even I dare say that awe for the for the object it kind of bring kind of brings you closer to the individual that you have this great respect for. Oh, yeah, I, I think that that goes without saying. I mean, it really is. Uh, before you came on the air, I was talking about how um, the Binding Key Collection at Yale has, among other things, the prayer book that Sir Thomas More had up in the Tower of London. He's jotting cool, yeah, he's <laughs> jotting notes, marginalia, in, in, in this book before he's going to be executed. I mean, there isn't a way to get closer to, t- to Sir Thomas More than to behold that book. And Rachel, that must be true for you. Handling, I mean, I don't get to handle the Sir Thomas More book. Uh, and, and as you say, I mean, places like Beinecke, they don't really want you uh, getting too close to a whole bunch of stuff. But you, but you probably are. And I, I don't know, does it does it still have a kind of dazzle to it, the idea that you're touching something that's, I don't know, four or five, six hundred years old? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's wonderful. You know, it's just, you know, sometimes it's, it's, you know, it's kind of hard to really understand the importance of it because, like you say, a lot of these things are just they're they're irreplaceable. You know, and 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 they're it's kind of getting into someone's mind. Um, and and that's partially why I love paper. Being a paper conservator, as I find it, it's very intimate. Um, often there's a really big difference also between looking like at a watercolor um, firsthand and under the microscope. You can see if the artist was left-handed or right-handed, or how he scratched into the paper, or you know, how he, um, you know, created an impasto stroke. Um, and um, it's really fun to recreate a lot of times, you know, their method and um, and what they were thinking. But, it, it, you know, of course, I get the benefit of doing that without seeing it behind glass. So um, I always appreciate that. But absolutely, you know, sometimes we're working in a museum and you're just kind of cranking out. You're, you're doing as much, you know, you're working on a lot of pieces, but sometimes, you know, just to sit back and kind of look at what you're working on, I said, and do a little research and understand it. It really brings a lot to your to your work. But, um, I, I yeah, it doesn't get word, old. Rachel, by the way, the intimacy that you feel with paper, I think, is uh, that's 
that's a new one for me, and I like it. Well, it's, and it's so obviously true, too. We're going to have to wrap this up pretty fast, unfortunately, because we need time for toilet paper. It's kind of the opposite <laughs> end of things. But, um, the, you it, know, the paper is definitely, yeah, a work of art on paper. Often it kind of like if you have an artist who does a, a sketch for a painting and, you know, often you, that sketch just kind of shows you what he was thinking and what he was trying to achieve. And that's a really wonderful, um, you get a wonderful look into the artistic process when you see something like that. Right. And anybody who's ever done research on anything, like really kind of hunting around kinds of research and or bibliophiles like you, Nicholas, just know the thrill of discovering a cache of letters, you know, in some dusty attic or something like that. It doesn't and, have to be a cache. It can be one letter. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it can be one, really. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, we have to stop here because we have to talk about where paper ends up sometimes, so to speak. Uh, but it was a, a thrill talking to both of you. Uh, and so Nicholas Bazbane's independent scholar, author of On Paper, the Everything of Its 2,000-Year History, Rachel Danzing, conservator of art on paper in private practice, adjunct teacher at NYU's Institute of Fine Arts. We'll take a break and we'll come back. And yes, we will talk about toilet paper. Say it's only a paper moon Sailing over a cardboard sea But it wouldn't be Today's show is produced by, may I have the envelope, please? What do you mean there are no envelopes anymore? You've written the credits in Sharpie on the side of a banana? Okay. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish does not like to be wrapped in paper. Our intern is Phil Geolopsis. The part of Bill Curry was played by a paper swan. On tomorrow's show, a special episode about horror. And now, back to Colin. Can I eat that banana now? You, you can. Just don't give me any, any trouble because I know origami. I also know polygamy, which is, of course, the art of folding parrots uh, and then marrying more than one of them. All right. So uh, we promised you uh, or perhaps threatened you uh, with the fact that we would uh, conclude with a conversation. Well, we would sort of get paper coming out the other end. It's a good place to end uh, with toilet paper. Richard Smythe, U.K.-based writer for publications, including The Guardian, The Times Literary Supplement, and BBC Wildlife. He's the author of several books, including, most relevantly, Bum Fodder, <laughs> An Absorbing History of Toilet Paper. I'm glad to know that the title of your book still makes you laugh. Uh, <laughs> it does. It does. It never gets it's a good sign. Uh, all right. So one thing we should begin by saying is that, you know, there are sort of statues all over the world commemorating people who, you know, led us into an entire new terrain of civilization. However, the person who figured out toilet paper is not commemorated because we don't know who that person is, right? Exactly. Um, we know that Joseph Gaiety uh, in New York in the 1870s created the first commercial toilet paper, but we don't know way back in history, maybe a millennium and a half ago, who was the first person to put this craft product of, of paper to uh, to uh, bathroom purposes, as it was called at one point. Right. So um, that doesn't mean that people didn't uh, practice acts of, of hygiene back there. So tell us about the xylospongium. I really <laughs> love the xylospongium. I kind of want one. But anyway, say what it was. <laughs> it sounds quite prestigious given the name, but um, xylospongium was a sponge on a stick, which dates back to ancient Rome. 
Um, the sponge part is obvious. You know, it's a sponge. If you have a sponge available, why not use it to wipe yourself with? The stick takes a bit more explaining. And the stick is there because you're in a communal toilet. Uh, you're in a communal bathroom. And to preserve your modesty, you're sitting on an enclosed toilet. So to clean yourself, you don't want to stand up because everybody will see you. So instead, there's a kind of a keyhole, an access hole in the front of your toilet. So you stick your stick through there with a the sponge on the end and do the business that way. And then you pull it out, and this is the best bit. You rinse it in a jar of vinegar and then leave it for the next user. Right. So, which sounds... Okay, that's the part of it maybe we don't like so much. But yes, <laughs> before there were selfie sticks, there was the xylospongium. Uh, and, and so, you know, that obviously had both its advantages and its drawbacks. And part of it is, yeah, it ultimately had to be reusable. And because the toilets were, you know, kind of communal that way, lots of other people used your xylospongium. Well, uh, yeah. let's, uh, Richard, let's jump from there to the present moment just for a second. Uh, can mm-hmm. you give us kind of a sense of the, the size of this industry, either in the UK or the US? Like how, how big is toilet paper? It's monumental. Um, I mean, the first, something like 4, 470,000 trees um, could be saved if, if we stopped using regular toilet paper, which gives you some idea of the scale. Um, now, the first, um, I think I'm right in saying, the first um, three ply paper sold 24 million packs that was launched in 2009 which brought in more than 144 million dollars um that's just one brand one style um and that just gives you an idea of what a monumental business this is now right in other words if we could figure out something better than toilet paper we'd probably be instantly assassinated by corporate assassins who didn't want the world to know about it but yeah it's inevitable yeah yeah so but there are things i mean I don't know. Americans, first of all, if you go to Japan, toilets are like just mm-hmm. these unbelievably complicated things. They have all kinds of apparati uh, on them. Uh, but I mean, even in Europe, I mean, most Americans aren't that comfortable with bidets. I don't know. Is there a better way to do this, a way to use less paper and get better results? Well, yeah. Um, the toilet paper is a very European and American phenomenon. Outside those areas, in, in Asia particularly, water is used, which is obvious, really. You know, if you've got. Um, if you got poop on your hand, you wouldn't wipe it with paper and think, that's fine. You would probably <laughs> want some water. Um, and so there's this real cultural uh, disparity, really, this cultural division between, between East and West. Um, and when you think about it, you've got to kind of feel that the East has got it right um, and that we're, you know, we're using good paper uh, that doesn't do a particularly effective job. Um, but the B-Day, sadly, is in, is in decline outside as you say, in Japan, it's it's all the rage. But in Europe, in its uh, in, in its spiritual home, the B Day is uh, is struggling. Although um, uh, toilet paper is is king. I feel compelled to say that the person who is running the board for this show, Kion Wolf, recently uh, built and bought a, a new house and got a bidet as a housewarming uh, gift, and she's quite excited about it. So I approve. Yeah. yeah, quite right too. So you know, you talked about the person who started the commercial um, toilet mm-hmm. paper business. We should also say that you know, prior to that, it wasn't just the xylospongium. People used all kinds of things, including apparently among the American settlers, corn cobs. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. A dried-out corn cob. Um, before the, the Sears catalogue, when that came along, that was the, the <laughs> thing that you hung on a nail in your outhouse, and that's what you wiped yourself with. But before that, yeah, you get a corn cob. Once you've eaten the corn, you dry it out, and you've got it's kind of like a loofah. Um, and mm-hmm. it's a little bit on the rough side. 
Um, there's a, a poet called um, John, uh, John uh, Whitcomb Riley, yeah. who was a Hoosier poet, who um, wrote this nostalgic uh, piece about uh, wiping the goose flesh with the lacerating cob, um, which uh, is a reference to the corn on the cob that's left out in the, in the outhouse. So it obviously wasn't any fun, but there was a sort of pride taken in it by Midwesterners in particular, um, in, in the sort of hardiness uh, that you would that you have to have to uh, to use this in that sensitive area. Right. Oh, you sort of ruined John Whitcomb Riley. I, 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 at this time of year, I often often think about when the frost is on the pumpkin and the fodder's in the shock, which I think there is. There you go. Yeah, I think yeah. it's but him. But he was also there on the the poet of the corn cob. Yeah. Yes. Well, put that in <laughs> put that in your pipe and smoke it. Um, <laughs> so, so you know, you mentioned the Sears catalog. So this is this is ultimately the branding problem that the toilet paper industry will face as it mm-hmm. as it as it comes into existence, which is people already have paper. They got plenty of paper. Exactly. They've got the Sears catalog. They're not going to, you know, keep it around forever. There is sort of waste paper just in life by, by that time in American yeah. and British life. So so why not use that? Somehow or other, the, the this new nascent industry has to persuade us of its own necessity. How do they do that? Absolutely. Well, that's the classic um, kind of uh, necessity of, of corporations down the ages, isn't it? Invent a need. Um, and what they did was basic old-fashioned quackery. Um, Joseph Gaiety, his, his stroke of genius was to say, not that this was a more comfortable wipe, or not that it was better in any way, really, but he said that printer's ink, any printed paper that you were using, would give you hemorrhoids. Um, there was also a, a kind of parallel attack line was um, that, that it also blocked up plumbing. But the real, the real one that did the business was the hemorrhoids line. That was repeated again and again. Um, and that convinced people that you did need a special product. It wasn't just paper, it was medicated paper. Uh, it was infused with uh, unspecified uh, uh, emollients that would um, yeah, prevent piles and, and you would, would keep you safe. And that line, long after toilet paper had become standard, that kind of line persisted into the 20s and 30s, 40s. There's some fascinating advertisements um, where the advertisers give these dark warnings of um, toilet problems. You get these pictures of uh, women languishing in beds looking at, at death's door, and it says the problems caused by uh, unsuitable toilet paper, urging you to buy ever more and more soft and expensive, uh, expensive uh, paper. Great. Well, that's, uh, Richard, Richard, that's the other part of this. Once you've invented the need uh, and then begun to flood the market, so to speak, w- with it, then, <laughs> then you invent a, a luxury, uh, which exactly. is the softer kind of, of toilet paper. Uh, say something uh, about that. Yeah. Um, well, again, this is a classic capitalism, isn't it? It's you, your emerging middle class comes along, wants these status symbols, wants these um, signs that you're a sophisticated and uh, an elegant household. Um, there was one ad that um, was something like uh, the kind of lady who keeps fresh flowers in her in her uh, parlour, um, and that's you know this particularly elegant toilet paper. Um, and it's interesting because at the same time you have a parallel. Um, the product is desirable because it's expensive and it's, it's cushioned and it's lovely, but at the same time, it's toilet paper. So you have this parallel thing of um, rather elaborate ways of concealing your toilet paper. I don't know, certainly in England, we've, we used to have the, um, the dollies. It would be a lady with a large skirt, and you would lift up the, the lady with the skirt, and there would be a toilet roll underneath, so no one would ever know your terrible secret. There was also a fan. That, so it was kind of a James Bond type thing. It was a fan that concealed sheets of toilet paper. So again, no one would ever know that you wiped your bottom. Um, 
And there was even a thing, one of my favourite ads was one that um, had a coupon at the bottom. And it said, um, just go into the shop and into the store and hand this over to the storekeeper and you will never have to mention toilet paper. Uh, the Scots Toilet Roll, which was one of the big brands, uh, used that, that method as well. They said, ask for Scots and you will never have to actually say the dread words, toilet and, paper. And isn't that kind of amazing, too? It's sort of like the, the last article of shame. You know, we, we, yeah. had, we had a conversation yesterday. We got into Shakespearean puns, and we know that Shakespeare mm. just, you know, can't stop talking about vaginas and penises and yeah, farting absolutely. and belching. But I don't think in Shakespeare that anybody ever wipes, right? Not that I'm aware of, no. Although there is, if you look back through literature in medieval, early modern, well, pretty much anywhere before kind of the 19th century when we all got a bit more sensitive. Um, people like Dryden, uh, Rabelais, very famously, um, Chaucer, uh, Jonathan Swift is always talking about wiping his bum on things. Um, so it, it was there in the old days. It was very much just a part of the regular, you know, just another thing to write about. You had to but, know who um, to talk to. All right, so last question, and it's the question I'm sure you get asked wherever you go. Which way should the role face? <laughs> Weirdly, I have no strong opinion on this, but the best explanation, best argument I've heard on this is um, you should always have it facing with the, the sheet dropping at the front unless you live in a country that has poisonous spiders, hmm. in which case you have it at the back so you can check if there's anything lurking there before you reach out while in a vulnerable position. That seems like a very good, good, good solid so. piece of advice, and even if it's not, that's where we're going to end. Well, with Richard Smythe, his book is Bum Fodder, uh, An Absorbing History of Toilet Paper. I hope that this has been an absorbing conversation as well for you. It has been for me. Thanks to everybody who helped out, including our fabulous interpreters uh, who are here today interpreting not this particular part of the conversation, although that may have been a poor choice. Maybe we should have chosen this one. What could be more universal? But anyway, they've been interpreting this in American Sign Language. So for our deaf audience as well. So anyway, we'll be back tomorrow with another show. Why not?